What do you do when obedience is too much? When divine directive seems unfeasible and then proves impossible, what then? What do you do when you can't do it? This is a story about failure, about weakness that precludes the faithful discharge of duty. It's a story about a God who asks more of us than we can manage. And it's a story about why a God like ours would do a thing like that. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. It was the dust cloud that tipped them off. A panting scout arrives with the news, perhaps gasping as he relays what he's seen to a sharp-eyed young man. A quick nod. Moses must be told immediately. They'll likely want to bring Hur into the loop as well. The young man has noticed how the brothers have recognized and encouraged Hur's leadership in recent days. It's been good for Moses. He's looked tired of late. The young man rushes to his mentor's tent. Moses, it's happening. Moses' face falls. Thank you, Joshua. They both know it was only a matter of time. When your caravan is as vast as Israel's, word of your travels travels much faster than you. And where? The nations north and east found themselves asking, are these Hebrews going to settle? not in our land. Predictably, it's the Amalekites who've been the first to find the presence of Yahweh worshipers disagreeable. If you're not the predator, you're the prey. And so they assembled an army, kicked up a dust cloud, and bear down now on the Israelite camp. How terrifying must it be for those who were slaves not two months ago unorganized and largely unarmed, traveling through the desert with untold numbers of women and children to be facing attack from the standing army of an established nation or even a well-ordered militia. The frightening possibilities play in Moses' mind, surely, but he cannot look outside his tent without seeing the pillar of cloud churning above their camp, keeping watch, pledging, presence. Jaw set, Moses tells his young aide, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. He looks past Joshua, glancing at the high ground beyond his shoulder. I will stand at the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. It seems Yahweh has given instruction concerning this moment. Two staffs strike rock, pierce sand, moving in rhythm with their owners. 
alongside Moses' and Aaron's feet, a third pair makes the climb to the top of the hill. Hur, a kindred spirit, a welcome comrade for the brothers these days. Was he invited on this mission, or did he volunteer? He's the type who'd offer himself, certainly. Whether he is, as later students of this story will suppose, Miriam's son is unclear. Unclear, too, his paternal parentage, though certain rabbis will insist that it was a man named Caleb who married Miriam and fathered Hur. Regardless, Hur stands alongside Moses and Aaron atop the hill. The three watch as below Joshua and the men he's gathered from among the Israelites make their stand against the forces of Amalek. What do they fight with? Ornamental swords and shields, perhaps. Collectibles bestowed as part of the hoard of gold and silver, the gift of Egyptians bewitched by Yahweh in those final days. And so untrained men swing at professional soldiers with onyx-hilted golden swords, thrust bejeweled daggers in the general direction of their enemy, precious metals and precious stones smeared with precious blood. This should not be going well. But somehow, it is. The Hebrews are prevailing. Joshua shouts encouragement to the men, swings, thrusts, pushes the attackers back, back, back. He knows it is not him. On the hill, Moses stands tall, the wind whipping his robe, arms raised, hands held high, the staff of God hoisted aloft, Yahweh fighting for, with his people at the foot of Moses' obedient posture. Joshua's eyes shine with burgeoning faith. It seems Yahweh is able even to... But then, as the battle wears on, the tide begins to turn. Above the fray, the 80-year-old Moses' arms have begun to tremble. He's been told by Yahweh, while your arms are raised, Israel will be victorious. But Moses is discovering the limits of his body. How long am I supposed to be able to? Sweat drops glisten on Moses' forehead as he struggles to keep his arms steady. And then his heart beats faster as he watches the unmistakable, horrifying correlation. His hands descend and the Hebrews begin to lose. Why would Yahweh do this? Why would he require something of Moses that Moses cannot achieve? He's an old man. It's hot and he's tired and, and the weight of these people and their affairs, their civil disputes and complaints and arguments and questions all day, every day, burdened by the weight of their concerns. It's too much. And now he has to be the one to stand on this hill and hold up his staff and hold up all of Israel. The tremors become shakes as the battle rages. A tear slips down Moses' cheek, perhaps, as he sees Joshua pinned down by two Amalekite warriors, their swords raised. His arms are burning. He closes his eyes. Surely he cannot look. 
This is my fault. Joshua, I am sorry. And then Moses feels his right arm rise. The left one, too, moving against gravity, pulled skyward by Yahweh. He opens his eyes. No, not Yahweh. Aaron and Hur, their hands grasping Moses' wrists and pulling his arms into the air. The staff rises. Relief floods Moses' quivering muscles. He relaxes, surrenders, and his hands move higher. Wait, is this... Are they allowed to help? But when Moses looks to the battlefield, he sees Joshua up and fighting. Everyone, all of his people are now taking ground with their decorative swords and shields. But Moses' legs now are shaking. The adrenaline is gone. The excitement and exertion of the last while is catching up to his lower half. And then, suddenly, Aaron's and Hur's hands are gone. No! Moses tries and fails. His arms begin to fall again as his legs start to give way. I'm sorry, Yahweh. I can't. But before he can finish the sentence, Aaron is shouting to him to... What? What's he saying? Sit! Sit down, you old fool! They've rolled a nearby rock over. Aaron and Hur take Moses' arms once again, keeping his hands high as they lower him into a seated position. Again, relief surges through Moses' body as his muscles finally relax. As the sun moves across the sky, Moses' partners remain, the three of them obeying Yahweh's directive, together. The staff of God flies high, like a weather vane testifying to the presence of a strong wind, like a banner waving above the army, rallying the troops, signifying all they're fighting for. And just before sunset, the men of Israel vanquish their assailants, the Amalekites. As his people cheer, Yahweh smiles at Aaron and Hur, jumping for joy up on that hill like children. Yahweh looks at Moses, the man who thinks he must do it alone. Not alone, my son. Not without me. <laughs> and not without them. With the cries of victory still hanging in the air, Moses meets with Yahweh. Write this down. The voice rings against the walls of the tent, the cloud columns swirling above. Moses nods. Record what happened in this battle. And record this. I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Make sure Joshua hears this. Those who lead the way in opposing Yahweh consign themselves to a bleak fate. And then Moses gathers stones. Perhaps he employs Aaron and Hur to pitch in as they've proven themselves consummate stone rollers. They stack the rocks one by one into an altar. Finally, Moses wipes the sweat from his forehead and names this place of remembrance Yahweh Nisi. 
Yahweh is my banner. Jethro stares out the door of his tent. In his line of sight, the woolen forms of sheep nosing around for overlooked tufts of grass, the movement of children playing games, of servants making rope, mending tents, gathering brush, the flutter of talismans catching the breeze, sending prayers to Baal, god of storms, or his sister Anat, goddess of hunting and warfare, But Jethro's gaze lies beyond all of this. His eyes stare, unfocused, but his mind is fixed on one thing, the God of the Hebrews. Everyone is talking about what he did in Egypt, the blows he struck against that mighty empire, the way he took their firstborn, as if every one of them belonged to him. And the sea, word is that he opened the sea, split it with the obsidian blade of his word, and all of this by the hand of Moses, Jethro's son-in-law. He's had a first-hand report of everything, thanks to his daughter, Zipporah. She arrived in Midian a while ago with the children and grandchildren, something about not living in a caravan when her father's house was within a few days' travel, something else, perhaps, about not seeing much of Moses these days anyway, thanks to them. But those stories, the stories of quail and manna, springs made clean and water from rocks, They've been enough to set this old priest's mind ablaze. The the power promised by Anat or Asherah or El, actually demonstrated by Yahweh. He must go, speak to Moses, be there, see the towering cloud and colossal inferno himself. Jethro rises, his mind made up calls for a servant to inform Zipporah and Gershom and Eliezer. It's time they returned, and Jethro will go with them. Rephidim In the distance, not quite seen from here, Horeb stands like a sentinel the stone holding the warmth of the sun as shadows draw across its eastern face. Here in Rephidim, the vast camp of the Hebrews stretches along tens of thousands of acres, a city unto itself. Tents dot the ochre landscape like stars in the sky. And from one of the tents, Moses emerges with a broad smile. Jethro! Moses! Moses bows before the grinning priest of Midian, rises and kisses him as they embrace. Zipporah, my wife, and Gershom and Eleazar, look at how these children of yours have grown every day since we parted. After the greetings, Moses cannot help but notice that Jethro is itching to catch up. An invitation to come in and sit enthusiastic acceptance, 
but not before the old man grabs one more glimpse of the unearthly mass of vapor eddying above the settlement. Inside, tea, perhaps. Beautiful Egyptian goblets. The white petals and golden cones of wild chamomile flowers baptized in steaming water, offering sweet notes of apple and tobacco. Is this water from... If Jethro asks, he's delighted by the answer. Yes, from the rock. (laughs) Amazing, simply amazing. They talk, the two of them. Jethro asks questions, and Moses tells him everything. And Pharaoh's face when the Yahweh dragon ate the others. What what was it like? Or the frogs. What did that sound like at night? Uh, Tell me, what's at the bottom of the sea? I hear your men sent Amalek running. That, That must have been Yahweh, yes? And were you afraid when the people followed you out of Egypt? <laughs> Leadership, that's the most frightening part of this story, no? What prayers do you use? You must tell me the words. You've clearly stumbled upon the incantations that unlock the favor of the gods. A shake of the head from Moses, shrug of the shoulders. You won't believe this. I just talk to him. Something like that. And with every answer, Moses' constant refrain, Yahweh saved us. All the while, Jethro listens delightedly. Finally, he cannot contain himself. Praise! Praise be to Yahweh! He exclaims, bracelets of beads and bones rattling as he waves his hands with zeal, runic tattoos emblazoned on his forearms and fingers, perhaps with joyful eyes framed by skin the color of acacia and wild wisps of white hair. Praise be to Yahweh who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. And then Moses' eyes grow wide as his father-in-law, the pagan high priest of Midian, continues, Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all other gods. Oh, he claps Moses on the shoulder. I've brought something for him. For him? For... Sure enough, in minutes, Jethro is presiding over a burnt offering, flames licking the flesh sacrificed to Yahweh. A wave of Jethro's hand and servants are bringing more sacrifices from the caravan. By the time the sun sets, Jethro's offerings have all been grilled up, portioned out, and piled onto a long table around which Aaron and all the elders of Israel gather to share a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. In the morning, Moses rises early and journeys, as he does every day, to the seat from which he hears the cases of the people. By mid-morning, the line 
snakes around tents, boulders, sheep pens, everyone waiting not so patiently for a decision. Who's right, who's wrong, who must pay, who gets to collect? The disputes are endless. And how could it be anything less with a group of people this size trying to live together week after week with no rule system? No laws, except for the most basic guidelines of morality. Anything more nuanced must be tried and decided by someone in authority. Moses, mayor of this sprawling city, saw the need and felt the obligation. To turn away would not have been right. And so here he sits, and here they all stand, waiting hours in line to bring their cases. What? What are you doing? Moses looks up to see the face of his father-in-law pushing through the crowd. All these people waiting to see you. If Moses smiles a mostly tired but slightly self-important smile, Jethro waves the people back to create a bit of privacy and doubles down. Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses straightens his back, his tone changing a bit. Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Argue with that. But Jethro looks nonplussed. Mm, What you are doing is, is not good. Moses blinks. You and all these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. Jethro laughs, perhaps, at the absurdity of the situation. (laughs) The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Moses moves to object, perhaps, but Jethro's beads rattle as he raises his arm to silence his son-in-law. Now, listen to me, and I will give you some advice, (laughs) and make God be with you. If Moses is tempted to remain defensive, a quick look beyond Jethro's shoulder at the endless string of plaintiffs prompts amenability. Moses sighs. Yes, you must be the people's representative before God and and bring their disputes to him, Jethro concedes. Teach them. Teach them his decrees and instructions and, and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But a cocked eyebrow, and the old priest continues, Select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Ah, tiered delegation. That could have them serve as judges over the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That furrowed bronze hand on Moses' shoulder, that twinkle in Jethro's eyes, that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this, and if, of course, God commands it, you will be able to stand the strain and all of these people, bracelets rattle in a sweeping gesture, all these people will go home satisfied. And maybe my daughter will see a bit more of her husband. He doesn't say that last part, but he's thinking it, surely.
A few days later, the snaking line has been severed. Newly minted magistrates preside over the myriad disputes, each fledgling judge walking a bit taller, buoyed by purpose. The people are happy. Their wait time for resolutions is a fraction of what it was before. Too, as they interact with these counselors, see the care and wisdom in the eyes of these men, as they feel the warmth of so many leaders' attention and concern, they feel shepherded. And Moses, Moses hears the most difficult cases. They're complicated sometimes. They require quite a bit of wisdom. But he prays, asks Yahweh for a discerning spirit, for the ability to say hard things, for eyes to see each person, each situation, as Yahweh sees them. Help me to be like you. And each time he asks, the answer is yes. When the day of departure comes, the servants of the high priest of Midian saddle the camels, and a crowd gathers to see him off. Jethro says a tearful goodbye to Zipporah, to Gershom and Eliezer and their families. Does the old man lighten the mood? I need to kiss fat babies. Bring them here. It gives me strength for the journey. Finally, Moses steps out from the group. Jethro, <laughs> Moses, smiles, tears. Thank you is, is not hardly enough, but thank you. This visit was perfectly timed. Sometimes the leaders need to be led. Beads rattle as Jethro wraps his arms around Moses. Next to the priest, Moses almost looks young. This embrace is the last time they will see one another. Wild white hair waving in the breeze, the old man pulls back, perhaps furrowed bronze hands on Moses' shoulders. Remember, my son, not alone. A penitent smile from Moses as Aaron and Hur and Joshua and Zipporah and Miriam and so many others look on from the crowd. Moses leans on the staff in his hand. No, not alone. Justin here. Thanks so much for listening to Visitation. I hope this seventh installment in the Exodus story blessed you. I loved creating this episode and I kind of wish I could get a visit from Jethro like once a month from here on out. 
As usual, I'm sending an email out this week with some behind the scenes info about this episode and some of the coolest stuff I've found around the internet recently. I call this newsletter the latest and you should definitely sign up if you're not on the list. It's free at holyghoststories.org, links in the show notes. Speaking of this episode, it was made possible by the Mariah Foundation, an organization convinced that their blessing was not just meant for them, but for you. I think that's beautiful. And hey, big news. Speaking of financial partnership, as of this past week, season four of Holy Ghost Stories is fully funded. I have shed tears of joy crossing this milestone with you. And wow, so many of you have donated or become patrons giving monthly to this show. And I just cannot tell you how grateful I am for the way God has enabled this audacious vision he gave me a while back to tell the story of the Exodus this way. If you have donated at all, if you've prayed for me and for the season's funding, you and I are partners in this endeavor with him. And I cannot thank you enough. What you've enabled is reaching people around the world and bringing them into encounters with a liberating, sea-splitting God. With that in mind, a quick shout out to every one of the incredible patrons of this show on Patreon and to the superheroes of patronage, the Raconteurs. Hildy, David, John and Teresa, Daniel, Deborah, Terry, Rachel, Travis, Steve, Sam, Daniel, Shannon, Kara, Dawn, Catherine, Jean-Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Stephanie, Cheyenne, Helen, Debbie, Scott and Susan, Elizabeth, Rick, Derek, Jeff, Maddie, Jody, John, Ricky, Brandy, Mark, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie. Thank you for holding up my arms. Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios. Our composer is Kendall Ramsour. Our sound engineer is Joel Dolly. Manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt. Research, writing, narration, and direction by me, Justin Gerhardt. Till next time. 